All right, if you would, go ahead and take your Bible and open to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. This morning we're in a, another week of our study through Hebrews. And we're going to be in this study through the rest of the semester and next semester. And to do that, just to let you know, we're going to, to, to get all the way through Hebrews in that amount of time, we're going to probably spend about two weeks on each chapter. So um, having looked at the opening words of chapter 1 last Sunday, today we're going to think about the rest of chapter 1, beginning in verse 4 through the end of the chapter. Uh, one thing we got a taste of last week and that we'll absolutely see again today is that when you study Hebrews, and I've been thinking about this all summer and, and then preparing to teach each week, and if you've been reading through it and thinking through it yourself, one thing you find out is you don't have the luxury of easing into it. Like, it just kind of throws you into the deep end of the pool from the very opening words, and it, it doesn't really ever let up. Um, but that's exactly what makes it such a rewarding book to study, because even to get the, the basic gist of what he's saying, it forces you to dig deeply into uh, the Old Testament especially, um, and to think deeply about what it's saying. And, 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 and in that way, you see its riches. And it may, it may lead you to think about Jesus in a way that you've not thought about him before. It may lead you to think about his salvation, your salvation, in a, in a deeper way, in a way that you haven't considered before. And um, what we're going to find this morning in, in the rest of the chapter 1 is the author still fleshing out some of the themes that we saw last week in the opening words. Um, basically, the theme of the superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is better. His superiority over all things. And, and certainly, his superiority over all that the believers that this letter was addressed to were temp being tempted to leave Christianity for. Just remember some of the background that we talked about last week. Um, because it's important to remember the background. We don't know like who wrote the letter necessarily or some specifics, but it's clear what the major uh, background was, and that's going to help you understand some things in the letter, particularly the warnings that you see. Again, we don't know for, for sure exactly who wrote the letter or exactly where this congregation was that he was writing to. I could surmise that they were in Jerusalem because there's so much talk about the temple and and, and Jewish practices. But even if you don't know either one of those things, just reading the letter, it's clear that it was written to people who came to faith in Jesus out of Judaism and were now tempted to go back. Tempted to leave Christ and go back to their old way of life in Judaism. They were tempted to go back after coming to faith in Christ because once they came to faith in Christ, they found life got harder. It just got harder for them. It, it was hard enough being a Jew in the Roman Empire, because the Romans uh, had such prejudice uh, against the Jews, it made life hard for them. Well, now when they came to Christ, it was even worse, because not only did the Romans have prejudice against them too, uh, but now the Jews did, because they had it from both sides. And you get, you get small pictures throughout the letter. You get small pictures of some of the things that they were going through. Some of them were being thrown into prison for their faith. 
Some of them were being forsaken by their families. That's part of the, when you come, when they, I mentioned that last week. A lot of them, when they came out of Judaism into Christianity, they were coming out of the faith of their family into, into Christianity. And, and, and when they did that, there was intense pressure from their family to come back. I mean, you, you still see that today. People, people may, who may want to leave the, the Muslim faith and come to faith in Christ, their family is an intense pressure in their life or any, any other uh, thing like that. Some of them were facing economic pressure, and that was a real one, like economic pressure. And what I mean by that is, is uh, days of pre-industrial revolution, so I mean many of them to survive and to live made, made goods or grew produce or whatever for themselves, and that's how they made a living, by selling their goods. Well, now that they came to faith in Christ, very often they faced that nobody would buy their goods. Or they couldn't go somewhere and buy someone else's goods. It was just hard to live. Just hard to live as a Christian. And, uh, and, and so the author wrote this letter to those believers tempted to leave Christianity, return to uh, Judaism, where at least there would be half the pressure and half the hardship, than they were having at the moment, but to show them the consequences and to warn them of the consequences of leaving Christ, but also to show them all the glorious reasons to stay and to persevere. Christ is, his point is Christ is better than anything you might leave him for. Christ is, is better and, and worth any hardship you endure for following him. It'll be worth it in the end. That's not only here, but that's all over the New Testament. Christ is better. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off and focus on verses 4 through 14. Rich, rich truth. But before we do that, let's read the passage together. And so that we're not starting in the middle of a sentence in verse 4, let's just start again at verse 1. Read the whole chapter. It's not, it's not long anyway. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your, ear, your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, and errant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. This is, this is, uh, this is your word written down through human authors that we can read and understand and, um, and benefit from. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth and ears to hear it, hearts to receive it, wills to obey it. Give us the help that we need by your Holy Spirit, even to hear your word and to love it. And give me the help that I need to teach it. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So reading this chapter, to, at least to me, and I hope maybe to you, two things jump out immediately just about it. One um, is, in verses 4 through 14 specifically, is the focus on angels. Like, it, that's, that's basically the whole point. Uh, Jesus is better than angels. That's the whole point here. The second thing is just the crazy amount of Old Testament quotations. That's basically the whole, uh, it's just one right after another. Starting in verse 5, he quotes from Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Deuteronomy 32, or Psalm 97, Psalm 104, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110. I mean, it's just over and over. Why? Let's just, before we get into the meat, let's just, let me just say a couple of words about those two, because those are clear observations. Why the focus on angels? Why all the Old Testament quotations? So let's, let's say, let me say a word about those things, and we'll maybe understand better what the specific truths are in this passage. Why the, why the focus here on angels? Why the lengths gone to to show that Jesus is greater than angels? Why does it begin this way? Well, a couple of reasons have been suggested, but the most likely reason to me seems to be this, that the Jews of that day held angels in particular, in high regard because Scripture repeatedly says that it was through angels that the Old Testament law was delivered to, to Moses. Like when Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the, the Ten Commandments, it was through angels that he received those tablets. Yes, they were written by the, the finger of God, the Scripture says, but as God said, no one can see me and live, God wasn't like, here you go, Moses. It, there needed to be an intermediary. And angels, according to Scripture, were that intermediary. Um, we see that in Acts chapter 7. when Right before Stephen was stoned to death, he says in, uh, in, in, in Acts 7, verses 52 and 53, Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered, whom you, uh, you, you who received the law as delivered by angels... And did not keep it. So the law right there, he says, was delivered by angels. Well, in Galatians 3, Paul says it as well. He says, why then the law? Galatians 3, 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come uh, to whom the promises had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So again, the law was put in place through angels, just like Stephen said. So that's two places, Acts 7 and Galatians 3, where it's taught that the law was given to Moses through angels. But I guess you then have to ask your question, okay, I know Stephen and Paul said it, but is that what this author of Hebrews is thinking as well? And I think so. 
The reason I think that is if you look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this is the first warning in the, in the, um, in the book that we'll look at next week. This is what he, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. He says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Um, and we'll stop there. And like I said, we'll think about that warning next Sunday in more detail. But right there, he also affirms that, that the law covenant given to Moses that they were tempted to leave Christianity for was delivered by angels. And I think this is why the author of Hebrews spends so much time here at the beginning of the book comparing Jesus to angels. What they, and what his point is, what you are tempted to leave Christianity for is inferior. It's inferior because where the Old Testament law, yes, was majestically delivered through angels, the gospel was delivered by God himself in human flesh. That's his point. So like we said last week, the Old Testament was always just in, in preparation for the new. That's the purpose of all these Old Testament quotations, by the way. He's saying that the, the Old Testament itself was always saying this. Christ is better than angels. The gospel of Christ is, better, is the better and final word. Now, let me say this little bit of personal application before we get into the meat of our passage. You may not feel like this very day as you sit here right now, you struggle with angel worship. Like, you may not feel like you are tempted to gravitate toward a message of an angel over the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ. But I would say two things in regard to that. And I can't spend too much time here because we've got a lot to get to. One is, we are all being constantly tempted to trust in something else. Um, as more worthy of our time and attention and affection than Jesus Christ. All of us. It may be an angel, it may be something else. But just as, just as it was angels for them, it's something else for you. So this is a necessary word. This is a relevant word for every one of us. Um, I wouldn't, we need to hear what he says about angels. I don't want to just say substitute your problem for whenever you see angels here. But the principle is true. right? But the second thing is this. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And it, you may not struggle with, with angel worship or gravitate toward messages delivered by uh, angels, but billions of people in the world do. Like, it seems noteworthy to me that in the world there are still right now whole religions, major religions, based on uh, messages supposedly brought through an angel. And I'm thinking, for one, Islam. Right? The message of the Quran was supposedly brought to Muhammad over a period of time through an angel, through Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Uh, and and, and not, not just Islam, but Mormonism. The Mormons, Joseph Smith supposedly received revelation through uh, uh, angels. You may not think, well, more, you realize that 
Mormonism is, is as big as the, the Southern Baptist Convention in the United States. I mean, there are as many Mormons as there are Southern Baptist, supposed Southern Baptists all over the United States. There's 16 million of them. 16 million. And there's, uh, <laughs> there's over a billion Muslims. Over a billion. So what the author of Hebrews says here in chapter 1 it shows that Christ is superior uh, to angels. It's in, it's in principle applicable to every one of us, and is it is ex- explicitly a- applicable to to nearly a fifth of the entire world still today, and to you as you bear witness to them. Think about it. It's a word we need to hear. So let's get to the specifics of the passage. And there seems to be at least three ways that the author of Hebrews says Jesus is better or greater than. Angels. One is in his name. His name is greater. The second is his worship. And third is his throne. His name, his worship, and his throne. That's what I want us to see here. So let's dive in and think first about his name. Christ is the name of Christ is greater than the angels. This seems to be the clear point of verses 4 and 5. Look there again. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and he quotes Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, and he quotes 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Christ is superior to angels to the extent that his name is superior. And that has been a promise streaming throughout the whole Bible. Just, just to give you a little background, even a, aside from the two Old Testament passages mentioned here, in one of the most foundational passages of the whole Bible is God calling Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And God said in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, now, uh, He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So the promise of a great name was given to Abraham. It would be fulfilled in one of his descendants, who, who, one whose name would be great, was coming. Who would it be? Well, as time marched on in the Old Testament and a kingship arose in Israel, this is what the, the promise that God gave to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 9. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So God repeated the promise he made to Abraham. He repeated that to King David, who was one of Abraham's descendants. You might have thought David would have been the one coming from Abraham who had a great name. But now he repeats the promise to David, one of his descendants. Who would it be? The New Testament opens with these words, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He He is the greater name promised to come. He is the son of Abraham who received that promise. He is the son of David who received that promise. And that's a clue to understanding what we see here in Hebrews 1. 
Because according to these verses, what is his name that shows that he is greater than the angels? What is the name he's talking about in verses 4 and 5? Yes, Jesus, but the two Old Testament quotations that he mentions here is the name Son. Son. Psalm 2-7. It's quoted in verse 5. You are my Son. Today I've begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7-14. Christ is God the Son. When you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, Witness, they will happily affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. You will stump them if you say He is God the Son. You might not stump them. They will bristle at that. But He is God the Son. He, that is true of no angel. Uh, he'll contrast that in verse 7 and in verse 14, especially with angels. They're merely servants. Angels are merely servants. Christ is the Son. But there's one more thing that we need to think about this because it could be confusing. Because if you're, if you're reading this carefully, if you're reading verse 4 carefully, it says that Jesus inherited this name. Does it not? Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than there. I told you guys, Hebrews throws you into the deep end of the pool. So we're swimming. He inherited this name. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that Jesus inherited the name Son? He's the Son. I mean, when did that happen? Is He not God the Son from all eternity? Yes, He is. But what I think the author of Hebrews is doing is making a slightly different point. Right here, if you're, if you're thinking carefully about the argument that he's making, he's talking about something that is true about Jesus by virtue of His resurrection from the dead. When thinking about the name of the Son of God, while He is from all eternity, God the Son, the second person of the triune God, there is more that can be said. Look carefully at the wording of verses 3 and 4. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. When, when did his name become superior? Was it not superior from all eternity? What's he talking about? When did it become superior to angels? He says in verse 3, after making purification for sins. That, how did he do that? Through his death and his resurrection. So what this is saying is this. Jesus was God the Son from all eternity. And, 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 and he was God the Son before, and he was God the Son even when he took on human flesh. But when he took on human flesh, his glory was veiled. His glory was veiled. And he humbled and he humiliated himself and took the form of a servant. And he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he humbled himself, according to Philippians 2, humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. But when Jesus rose from the dead, the humiliation that veiled his glory was removed. 
And these things that were always true of Jesus all along were now clear for all to see. And now, as the resurrected Son of God in human flesh, He has now inherited for Himself and for us with Him. Get me on this. When He rose from the dead, what He inherited was for Himself and for us with Him the glory that was always true of Him but never attainable for us. He inherited for himself the glory that was always true of him, now clear for all to see by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, and the glory that we can share with him. It was never attainable on our own. That's the testimony of the rest of the New Testament as well. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, uh, about Jesus after his death and resurrection, therefore, on that basis, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name and the promise of scripture in second timothy 2 12 and revelation 20 verse 6 is that we will reign with him he reigns he reigns now and he will reign for all eternity but because he took on our flesh and in human flesh inherited that glory that was always his from the beginning, but veiled and inherited not only for himself, but for us, we will reign with him. He was exalted at his resurrection both for his own glory and for ours. That's a sweet truth. But that leads to two more things that I need to mention quickly about the Son that flow out of this. We've seen his name is greater, but the next is his worship is greater. That's the clear point of verse 6, where he says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and then he quotes, they're not sure, he's either quoting Deuteronomy 32, 43, or he's quoting Psalm 97, 7, or he's mashing those two up and quoting them together. All right? Nevertheless, he, one of those two says, let all God's angels worship him. He's greater than angels because angels worship him. We're not to worship angels. The angels worship Christ, so we worship Christ. Let me say something too here about it says again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. I need to say a word about firstborn. I don't mean to pick on Jehovah's Witnesses, um, but they see words like this. They see it here. They see the, he's the firstborn. They see it in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the, the firstborn over all creation. They say, see, he, was, he had a beginning. He's not eternal God. He had a beginning. Christ is not God. He, he's, he's, he's great. He's the firstborn, but he was born. He had a beginning. Um, that's just not even understanding your Bible. Um, because what... what, what Scripture is saying when it calls Jesus the firstborn is not saying he's firstborn in a chronological sense. He is firstborn in a royal sense, in, in, in terms of status, not in terms of chron chronology, when he was born. Used in a royal sense, in the sense that the kings of Israel were often referred to as God's firstborn, meaning the highest place of privilege. That's said of David, that's said of David in Psalm 89, 27. Of David, that psalm says, God says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Well, if you know your Old Testament, 
Was David the oldest brother in his family? No. He was the youngest in his family, and yet he is called the firstborn. Because it's not chronology, it's status. The firstborn received the inheritance. That's what's said of Jesus here. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. The highest in all creation. And he's worshipped. That's the point here. Not by us, but even by angels, he is worshipped. Something that is only true of God. And he will be deliberately and specifically called God in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Angels exist for his worship. Just as all things exist for his worship. And so Jesus is greater. There's one more thing about him, though. And that is his throne. This is the natural progression of the chapter. His name is the name above all names. He is worshipped above all things. And so naturally his throne is higher than all thrones in heaven and earth. We've already seen back in verse 3 last week that he sat down at the right hand of the Father upon his resurrection and ascension. But there's more to say about it. And that's the main point of verses 7 through the end of the chapter. Like we just said in verse 8, clearly and directly is affirmed that Jesus is God. But of the Son, of the Son, about the Son, He says, your throne, O God. That's quoting from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. You, you see the, the language there. It's not, but to the Son or whatever. It's of the Son, about the Son. He says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. So the Son's throne is the very eternal throne of God Himself. But then he quotes this string of Old Testament passages from Psalm 45, from Psalm 102, and Psalm 110 to affirm several things about His throne. Not only that it's the throne of God Himself that He sits on, but three things at least about His throne other than it's divine. And one is that his throne is eternal. His throne is eternal. Like he says there in verse 8, your throne, O God, is what? Forever and ever. Or look at verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, still speaking of the Son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Who will remain? The sun will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. But like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. Who? The sun. And your years, the sun's years, will have no end. His throne is eternal. He's saying right there in verse 10, the Son is creator of all things. He said that back in verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So saying that again here. So his, his throne is eternal, true of no angel. Verse 9 tells us that his throne is also, and his rule is righteous. It's not just... It's not just eternal it's righteous verse 9 you have loved righteousness and hated 
wickedness. So his, the throne that he sits on is eternal, it's righteous, and finally in verses 13 and 14, it is sovereign. The emphasis is on the sovereignty of his throne, verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he, has he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of them, of those who are to inherit salvation? Serve whom? Serve the Son. So the whole point here is he rules and reigns from his throne. He is making his enemies his footstool. And the angels are working for his purpose to to, to bring help to those who are being saved. All of these things will be addressed more later in the letter. But to wrap it up, it isn't hard to imagine how immensely comforting these words might have been to those tempted to leave the faith. Keep the background always in your mind so you don't get lost in the forest for the sight of the trees. When you come across a deep truth like this, you're thinking, okay, his throne, it's eternal, it's righteous, it's sovereign, okay, okay. It might wash over you like nothing because you're not persecuted. But think about what this might have said to those being persecuted and tempted to leave the faith. To see that Christ, after his own suffering, after after making purification for sins, after bleeding, after suffering, after making purification for sins, after his own suffering, he inherited the name that is above all names. That brings motivation to them in their suffering. Even Jesus Christ, even Jesus The the letter will later say, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And now he is exalted in promising all his people to reign with him. And Revelation says, we'll give them a name. Mm. To see that he is worshipped and he is their God. Help those who are suffering under that persecution perhaps to see their persecutors in the proper perspective. They are not to be feared ultimately. Christ is. He's worshipped even by the angels. And to see him ruling and reigning righteously and sovereignly on his throne helps them to see that he is orchestrating all things for their good and for their salvation. They have every reason to endure simply by seeing Jesus for who he is. That's a good word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this this deep and rich truth uh, from Hebrews. Father, I sometimes when you read when we read Hebrews, it sounds like a a deep theological treatise. Um, but help us to be convinced in our hearts of the benefit we receive by digging deeply into it and thinking hard. Help us to see Jesus who, for who he is as this letter presents it, just as those did in the first century who were tempted to leave. As, they were, these, as these truths were being presented to them to encourage them not to abandon the faith because of persecution, use these same truths with us not to abandon the faith through apathy. And I pray it in Jesus' name.